I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. Hey guys, I love hearing how many of you are now making your own plant-based milks at home using the Nutra Milk. As you know, we fell in love with this blender while making our first batch of oat milk. And again, it just takes two minutes and there's no need to strain. What more could you ask for when it comes to making your own plant-based milks? We are now so confident that we are experimenting with other plant-based milks because it's so easy. Last week, we made a combination of almond and flax milk that turned out amazing. And uh, we've also been saving vegetable scraps to make our own vegetable broth as well. I can't recommend this appliance enough. Visit thenutramilk.com. Use the code PLANTSTRONG for free shipping and a $50 discount. Hello, Plant Strong people. I have a treat for you today. I am really excited. I am I'm still in Black Mountain, North Carolina, wrapping up our ninth annual Camp Plant Stock event. So this will be a departure from our regularly scheduled programming. Last year, I was blown away by this talk at our 2018 Plant Stock by Dr. Robin Shutcan. She is a integrative gastroenterologist. Say that five times quick. Uh, she's also the best-selling author of The Microbiome Solution and the founder of gutbliss.com. She was educated at Yale University and Columbia. She's been on the faculty at Georgetown University since 1997 and is the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness. She is absolutely brilliant. She is plant strong. She is passionate about helping her patients not just live longer lives, but dirtier ones. Her motto is 
Live dirty, eat clean. That is something that I can definitely get behind. Here she is with her no-holds-barred lecture entitled Guts, Germs, and Stools. Let's cut to the stage and learn how our microbiome is the next frontier in health and vitality. Let's roll Robin. So I want to convince you today why your microbes may be more important than your genes. And I want to talk to you about this whole phenomena of epigenetics. We know genetics is a study of our genetic code, the DNA that we inherit, the DNA that basically provides our body the instructions to make all our cells, our tissues, our organs. Epigenetics is a study of how our body creates chemical tags that change that expression, that basically turns genes on and off. So if any of you in the audience thought that, you know, our genes are our destiny, you get what you get and you don't get upset, I'm here to tell you that your genes are just a suggestion. And this is where I make my very bad joke, and I say, it's like the face a Kardashian was born with. It's just a suggestion, okay? It can change. <laughs> no offense, love the Kardashians, but I can never, I can never resist making that little, that little pun. So I want to start with a couple brief definitions. First of all, what the microbiome is. I was delighted to see the huge show of hands when Rip asked about the microbiome. But for those who still may not be entirely clear, it refers to all the microorganisms that live in and on our bodies. So over 100 trillion in all, a whopping billion bacteria in just one drop of fluid in your colon alone. Your microbiome is a more unique identifier of who you are than your own DNA. It reflects everything about you. Where you were born, and more importantly, how you were born, and we'll talk about that in a moment, where you've lived, what you've eaten, whether you've had a pet, medications you've taken, stress, whether your sister sneezed on you, everything is reflected in the microbiome. Our microbial cells outnumber human cells about 10 to 1. We have about 23,000 human genes and 3.3 million microbial genes and counting, leading some of us to wonder whether we're more microbe than human. So what do our microbes do besides make smelly gas, which in itself is a very important function? They digest our food. They synthesize vitamins. One of the things that happens in the hospital when people come in with pneumonia or sepsis is they get broad-spectrum antibiotics. And one of the things that happens shortly after they get those antibiotics is that their blood stops clotting. And we're usually alerted by this, by the phlebotomist who's drawing blood every day, and they'll say, this patient's blood isn't clotting. And so we start giving them vitamin K. And that happens because the antibiotics kill off so much of the microbiome that we don't have enough bacteria to help synthesize vitamin K. So that's an example of one of the vitamins that our bacteria synthesize that we can't make on our own. They metabolize drugs. Your response to different drugs, whether you're a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer, has a lot more to do with your microbiome than it has to do with genetics. It's why some people need only a tiny little dose of a drug, and other people may need a lot or not respond at all. Our microbiome helps us neutralize toxins. It trains the immune system. And this is crucially important, and we're going to come back to this in just a moment when we talk about the hygiene hypothesis. Training the immune system, kids who are not exposed to enough germs early on have a much higher risk for developing autoimmune disease down the road. 
because they need, the bacteria need that exposure to be able to tell the immune system, okay, this is really serious. This is Ebola. Let's make a big fuss. Okay, this isn't so serious. This we can completely ignore. It's that sort of training. And that has to happen at a really early age or bad things happen. We'll talk about that again in a moment. Our microbes also turn genes on and off. It's one of these very important epigenetic factors. So if you ever wonder how come everybody in the family has a certain disease and then all of a sudden you don't see the disease developing, or identical twins, why does one identical twin develop a disease and the other doesn't? It's because they don't have identical microbiomes, because the genes are identical, but their life experiences, their environment, their diet, their stress, all of those epigenetic influencers are different. So in medical school, we were taught really well how to diagnose things in terms of what this is. Well, this is Crohn's, and this is ulcerative colitis, and this is celiac disease. But that really essential question of why, why do people get Crohn's disease, or ulcerative colitis, or celiac disease, or rheumatoid arthritis, or eczema, or Raynaud's, why? And the answer lies well beyond the genes. Our microbiome is one of the most important factors for influencing disease expression. My area of interest is inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. And I had the incredible good fortune of doing my GI fellowship at Mount Sinai Hospital, where Dr. Crohn, Dr. Oppenheimer, and Dr. Ginsburg, only Dr. Crohn ended up with his name on the disease, but it was just actually three of them, described Crohn's disease in the 1930s. And Mount Sinai is a terrific hospital. There are about 70 gastroenterologists on staff, all things inflammatory bowel disease. But nobody ever asked that question. Why does this patient have Crohn's disease? We were very good at diagnosing it and treating it, but this essential question. In my own medical practice, I began to see a thread in my Crohn's and ulcerative colitis patients, a thread that I'm going to talk about here in terms of how these people were born, what their early life influences are, the food they'd eaten, the medications they'd taken, and realize that it wasn't just this incredible coincidence of disease falling out of the sky into our laps, but there was a little breadcrumb trail. And I thought, well, if you can sort of follow this trail for how disease developed, maybe you can undevelop disease, right? And my personal interest in it came after my daughter was born about 13 years ago with a, sort of the full medical mojo, if you will, of lots of antibiotics and C-section, et cetera. And my main interest is sort of preventing her from developing autoimmune disease later on. So let's take a look in a little more detail. Now, you may think that the most important day of your life was your first day of school or your first day of college or perhaps more importantly, your first day at plant stock. But I'm here to tell you that this, the day you were born, watch carefully, notice as a baby's head crowns, it turns posteriorly to face the tush. What better way to swallow a mouthful of microbes than for the head to turn posteriorly? So this moment here is actually the most important day of your life because that's when you get all your founding species. Now, the, fe the fetus is not exactly sterile, but it's pretty close. And so how do we go from almost germ-free fetus to a 100 trillion microbe superorganism it starts there. And what we know is that babies who are born via C-section, which is now a startling almost one in three births in the US, some for medical necessity, like breach, et cetera, but a lot for convenience and for commerce. We know babies born via C-section have higher rates of allergies, asthma, autoimmune diseases, and obesity. And we know that this difference follows them into adulthood. 
We know that babies born vaginally are colonized with the mother's healthy bifido, founding species as they should be. Babies born via C-section are colonized with hospital-acquired staph and other not-so-great microbes if you create a pecking order. We also know that in terms of breastfeeding, when I was in medical school, I used to see in the clinic these signs about, you know, breastfeeding decreases rates of Crohn's disease. And I thought, that's crazy. How can breastfeeding decrease somebody's likelihood of developing Crohn's disease when they're 25? That's those La Leche people, you know, with their propaganda. Turns out they were right. The third most common ingredient in breast milk is something called an HMO. Not the medical kind, but human milk oligosaccharides. Human milk oligosaccharides are completely indigestible by babies. Why is the third most, ingredient, third most common ingredient in breast milk something that a baby can't even digest? Because it's not there to feed the baby. It's there to feed the baby's bifido, the baby's founding species, so that, that those populations can grow, and that bacteria can help the baby repel staph on the mother's breast and nipple. Incredible. You could not design a more clever system if you tried. So babies who have the misfortune, like our daughter, of being born via C-section, not being breastfed for very long, getting IV antibiotics at birth prophylactically and all the rest, you start to see the breadcrumbs now of how those kids then are set up later on for autoimmune disease. In the 1950s, in sort of post-industrial London, David Strawn, who was a lecturer with the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, was tasked with trying to figure out why they were seeing skyrocketing rates of asthma and hay fever and eczema in children in London at that time. If you look at this graph here from the 1950s, you see this very steep rise with Crohn's disease, type 1 diabetes, MS, asthma. There are about 70 other autoimmune diseases we could superimpose on there, diseases that I like to think of as modern plagues that are really, we're talking about the last century for most of them. So the British government asked David Strawn, who was an epidemiologist, to try and figure out why they were seeing this sort of epidemic of hay fever and eczema in British children. And he set out on a 28-year epidemiological study following 17,000 kids from birth to adulthood. And he found two startling facts. The first was that children who were from large families with lots of siblings sneezing on them and giving them chicken pox and measles and a cold had very low rates of hay fever and eczema, these prototypic autoimmune diseases, as adults. So that was the first thing. So it was good to be in a large family. The second thing he found, which was even more surprising, was that children who were from more affluent households, who had loftier standards of personal hygiene, now this is the 1950s. These days, affluence does not mean loftier standards of personal hygiene. But back then, in post-industrial London, it did correlate. So he found that the wealthier kids who were bathing all the time had the highest rates of eczema and hay fever. So this turned everything we thought we knew in the medical community on its head. The idea that it was not just not good to be clean, but it was bad to be clean, and that perhaps all this super sanitizing and scrubbing and bathing and washing was actually creating, I'll skip this one, was actually creating this. So if we look at a map of the world today, we still see this north-south distribution. So this is showing MS, and we see hot areas in North America and uh, Western Europe, and very low rates, there's a little hot area in Australia, low rates of these diseases in Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, etc. 
So the countries that are more industrialized, that have more widespread sanitation, chlorine in the water, et cetera, these are the countries that have high rates of autoimmune disease. And as we look at countries as they become more industrialized, we see this a lot in India and in the Middle East, we see skyrocketing rates of Crohn's disease, et cetera. We know that antibiotic use, so people leaving the farm for the factory was one of the significant factors in terms of seeing these autoimmune diseases. But we know that there are other things we've been doing in terms of super sanitizing ourselves. And antibiotic use is a huge one. Antibiotic use damages a microbiome. There is no selective antibiotic out there that only kills off the bad bacteria. In fact, as bad luck would have it, our essential sort of good microbes, if you will, are more fragile and more susceptible to antibiotics than the pathogens. Five days of a broad-spectrum antibiotic will take you from that to that, will remove about a third of your gut bacteria. And there's no amount of a probiotic that's ever bringing that back. So the analogy I like to use for probiotics is like taking a full bathtub of water and draining out all the water. That's antibiotic. And the probiotic is taking a cup of water and pouring it back in. Say, okay, I'm ready to take my bath. So this idea that, you know, you can just eat yogurt or, you know, which we all know is just a less sweet form of ice cream. You can eat yogurt or you can uh, take a probiotic and all is well. That is magical thinking. The most important thing is judicious use of antibiotics. Antibiotics have been one of the greatest medical discoveries of all time. They could have saved millions of lives with a great plague. They save millions of lives every year, but they are also incredibly overused. The estimate, the conservative estimate, is that more than 50% of antibiotics prescribed today are unnecessary. The average American child will receive over 18 courses of antibiotics before their 18th birthday. Almost all of them for things like air infection, strep, et cetera, that do not require antibiotic treatment. So this stuff is not free. This stuff does irreparable damage to the gut microbiome. And if your kid, like our kid, was a C-section baby who was mostly formula fed, any additional course of antibiotics they get is bringing them one step closer to a modern plague. And that's very important to be aware of. So our, our sort of conventional way of thinking about disease is Pasteur's germ theory. And germ theory says that a bad actor gets in and makes us sick. And that's still very true of certain things like Ebola. Again, I'm not taking my chances with Ebola. So there's certain pathogens that are so virulent that they will make almost anyone who they come into contact with sick. But most of us don't get sick because of a bad bug. Most of us get sick because our terrain is unhealthy. We don't have a good gut garden. So if you think, for example, of a cruise ship outbreak of norovirus, there are 4,000 people on the cruise ship, but only 2,500 get sick. Why don't the other 1,500 get sick? Is it because they weren't exposed to the virus? Chances are they were all exposed to the same thing. The people who get sick are likely the ones who were C-section babies, antibiotics at birth, formula fed, taken lots of antibiotics, lots of steroids, lots of what my GI colleagues prescribe, proton pump inhibitors, which we know dramatically increase the rate of enteric GI infections, C. diff, et cetera. So it really is about terrain. And those of you who have transitioned to a plant-based diet or who are in transition, that's probably one of the first things you noticed, is you don't get sick all the time anymore. That's not an accident, and that's not because you're not coming into contact with 
influenza or strep, et cetera. It's because your terrain is different. I want to talk about two diseases in particular, inflammatory bowel disease as just the prototype of one of these autoimmune diseases, and then we're going to spend a minute talking about obesity. So inflammatory bowel disease is one of the diseases I study is really a dysregulation of the mucosal immune system, and what that means is your body is overreacting to its own bacteria. In the case of rheumatoid arthritis, your body is overreacting to its joints and it's destroying joint tissue. In the case of eczema or psoriasis, it's happening in the skin. With inflammatory bowel disease, it's happening in the gut. So it's an inappropriate response to microbes that are, for the most part, benign. But your, your immune system, it's, again, this exaggerated immune response. We know that there's a genetic basis for inflammatory bowel disease. We know there's familial clustering. There's family history. There's an increased risk in relatives. But this is not a genetic disease. There's an environmental trigger that happens that creates inflammatory bowel disease. So this is a meta-analysis. There's a microbial signature in Crohn's disease where we see this increase in mucosally associated bacteria, a decrease in microbial diversity. Diversity in the microbiome is as essential as diversity in the external world. Without it, we die. We need all the different organisms. So we see in inflammatory bowel disease, just like we see in MS and diabetes and obesity and lupus, we see a decrease in microbial diversity and we see a decreased production of butyrate, which is a short-chain fatty acid and which is sort of a marker for a healthy microbiome. And the details are not so important. So this is a meta-analysis I wanted to talk about. This is a study that was actually done by some of my colleagues at Mount Sinai Hospital, a meta-analysis where they pooled several studies, and they looked at over 7,000 patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And they found that the risk of Crohn's disease was markedly increased in people, and especially children, who had taken previous antibiotics. That was the biggest epigenetic factor in terms of developing inflammatory bowel disease. Even more shocking, the highest risk was for two antibiotics in particular, metronidazole and ciprofloxacin, the two antibiotics that for decades we have used to treat flare-ups of Crohn's disease. The very drugs we're using to, tr to treat the disease are implicated in causing the disease. We know that babies who are given antibiotics in the first year of life have a threefold increase in developing inflammatory bowel disease, and that increases by about 7% per year with each course of antibiotics. The other thing we know, so that's the bad news. Antibiotics bad, increase the risk of inflammatory bowel disease and many other autoimmune diseases. What's good? What can we do to protect our kids besides trying to birth them vaginally and nurse them, et cetera? We can help them live dirty. This was a study that was published last year, and it showed that rural residents during early life was associated with a lower risk of inflammatory bowel disease. It's protective, especially in young children who have had early exposure to antibiotics. So we can get our kids out there and get them dirty. I want to talk about twins for a quick second. This is what we think of when we think of identical twins, right? They pretty much look the same. But sometimes identical twins look like this. And if you're identical twins that look like this, you're on the Oprah show, as these two are. These identical twins, one lean, one obese, researchers at WashU transplanted their microbes. They transplanted the microbes from the obese twin and the lean twin into germ-free, normal-size mice. And within a very short period of time, the mouse who received the microbes from the obese twin gained weight. 
The mouse who received the microbes from the slim twin did not gain weight without any change in diet or exercise. Now, we've known that we can transplant microbes from an obese mouse to a germ-free slim mouse and that that mouse will gain weight. But we'd never done it from a human to a mouse before. And what this told us is that the microbiome is hugely responsible for what we call the energy harvest, which means how many calories are extracted from the food and either stored as fat, used as energy, et cetera. How do they do these? Microbes can either speed up or slow down the amount of time it takes for food to go through your GI tract, allowing for more or less calories to be absorbed. Our microbes can affect the secretion of insulin and other hormones that essentially influence fat deposition, fat storage, and our microbes can consume extra calories themselves. So this idea of calorie in, calorie out, or this idea that people who struggle with their weight are secretly binging Haagen-Dazs at night is completely, completely outdated and inaccurate. And we know that for the same amount of food, different people will gain and lose different amounts of weight. And these studies show that really well. So obese mice have a very clear microbial signature. They have, like the Crohn's patients, low diversity and low levels of certain bacteria. And we see almost an identical microbial signature in obese children. We can predict obesity with about 58% accuracy looking at DNA and with 90% accuracy looking at the microbiome, looking at the constellation of bacteria present or absent. So I want to tell you now about three important studies to do with food that I want you to remember. The first is a study by Paolo Leonetti, where he looked at a group of babies in Florence, Italy, and he compared them with a group of babies in Bullpon, Burkina Faso. And what he found was that at birth, for babies who were born vaginally and breastfed in early infancy, the microbiome was virtually identical between the Italian babies and the babies from Burkina Faso. But as soon as the children graduated to a table diet, everything changed. The kids in Florence, Italy, had microbes that are associated with diarrheal disease, with obesity, with autoimmune disease. They had very low levels of those essential short-chain fatty acids that are associated with a healthy microbiome. The kids in Burkina Faso, the kids in Florence were eating a standard American diet. It was pizza and pasta and gelato and also buco. So it was basically high-fat, high-sugar diet, very low in plant fiber. The kids in Burkina Faso were eating locally grown yams and greens. And I believe in his article, he said, enlivened by the occasional termite or free-range chicken, very rarely. It was a plant-based high-fiber diet. Those children had the microbes that were associated with leanness and anti-inflammatory microbes. They had double the levels of short-chain fatty acids. Now, what's really important here is that neither group of kids were sick. We're talking about two-year-olds, both healthy. But the Florentine children eating the Western diet, we were already seeing the beginnings of disease in their microbiome. So when people, have, other speakers have talked today, Michael Gregor talked about how coronary artery disease starts in childhood. Same thing, it gets laid down really, really early. So you might say, well, this is very interesting, but Burkina Faso and Florence, Italy are very different environmentally. And so maybe what we were seeing were the environmental differences that were now coming to light. So this was a study from Harvard from a couple years ago where they took nine volunteers and they put them on essentially an Atkins type, you know, pork rinds, prosciutto, cheese diet for five days. 
And then they took the same nine volunteers, they rested them for two weeks, and they put them on a high-fiber, low-fat, plant-based diet, jasmine rice, lentils, fruit, etc. no animal products. Within 30 hours of the food hitting the gut, everything changed. Not just the bacteria, dramatic decreases in the bilophilia, the bile-loving bacteria that are important for breaking down meat products, but are also associated with inflammation and diarrheal disease. So those dropped to very low levels. But even more astounding, genes started turning on and off within 30 hours of the diet changing. So I'll take rips week and I'll distill it down to 30 hours in terms of what it takes to start changing the microbiome. So this is a second study. The third study was a very cool study, a collaborative study between Imperial College London and uh, University of Pittsburgh. They took 20 African-Americans and 20 Africans from rural South Africa, 20 black Africans from rural South Africa. And they swapped the diet under very closely controlled circumstances for two weeks. The American group on the African diet, as you can imagine, did well, they had less inflammation in the colon, and they had reduced biomarkers of cancer risk. Now, two weeks is too short to see whether there were real differences in colon cancer, but the biomarkers, like N-Cyalotn antigen and a lot of other these biomarkers we know about, decreased dramatically. The poor South Africans, they did not fare so well on the American diet. They had a dramatic increase in cancer risk after just two weeks. So if you've ever wondered whether something like colon cancer, whether there's a dietary basis to this, wonder no more. So what were these rural South Africans eating that was so protective in terms of their colon cancer risk? They were eating max, microbiota accessible carbohydrates. A lot of the same things we've been eating here today, quinoa and brown rice and beans and beans and beans and more beans. And this was what was protecting them, these high fiber, low fat, high degree of indigestible fiber. What sort of bacteria does that diet produce? Things like Fecalobacterium prosnitziae, F. prosnitziae, as it's affectionately known, is one of the most prevalent bacteria in the gut of vegans. It is, has a protective role in metabolic diseases like cardiovascular disease, stroke, etc. There's a strong correlation with, again, these healthy short-chain fatty acids, and it is associated with a significantly reduced risk for cardiovascular disease, colon cancer, diabetes, and obesity. But you can't just go and borrow some of your vegan friends' F. prosnitziae if you happen to be a devoted carnivore and worried about colon cancer, et cetera, because the F. prosnitziae need to be fed. So this is a whole issue with probiotics. You go borrow some healthy probiotics from you know, the, the, the pharmacy, and you ingest them, and within, out, within about 20 minutes, they're dead. And the ones that do survive, you end up pooing out later on or the next day. So it's all about growing your own good gut garden. All of us have enough of our founding species to really create something magical in our microbiome, but you have to feed the bugs. You can't hack it with a probiotic. In the last century, we've seen this dramatic decrease in communicable diseases like measles, hepatitis, tuberculosis. And the reality is that the widespread sanitation that I've been knocking is in large part 
responsible for this decrease in communicable diseases, right? So I'm very glad that I don't have to worry about getting cholera from the drinking water, et cetera. But at the same time, the pendulum has swung the other way. So now I don't have to worry about cholera from the water, but I have to worry about non-communicable diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, RA, eczema, cirrhosis, et cetera, asthma, diabetes. So we've seen this shift from the communicable diseases that were killing people to the non-communicable modern plagues. And many of these changes are tied to changes in the microbiome. If we look at this triad of our innate immune system and the health of that, and when we talk about that, we're really talking about the health of our microbiome. We look at environmental factors like diet, and the, you put it all together, you sort of mix it all up in a bag, the microbiome, the immune system, the diet. There is not one organ system that is not affected. Inflammatory bowel disease, fatty liver, heart disease, obesity, cancer, particularly colon cancer, pulmonary disease and atopy. I have a whole talk on allergy and asthma and the contribution of the microbiome. Rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, diabetes, and what I don't have up here is the brain. Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia. We're finding a huge microbial contribution to these diseases. So this is a, a quote from my first book, Gut Bliss. If you want to encourage a growth of good bacteria, heal inflammation, improve motility, crowd out parasites, eliminate yeast, get rid of belly fat, dissolve gallstones, balance your pH, quiet down your irritable bowel syndrome, prevent diverticulosis, cut your risk of colon cancer in half, boost your energy, lose weight, banish your bloat, and really glow, then the single most important thing you need to do is eat greens every single day. The most commonly... Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. The most commonly prescribed medication in my gastroenterology practice is actually the green smoothie. And I know that Dr. Esselstein told us to chew our greens earlier, but I'll tell you for a lot of my patients who have a compromised GI tract, it's difficult for them to be able to get in that much solid food. So having them blend them in addition to the solid stuff they get in has been tremendously helpful. Our practice is almost exclusively nutritional and lifestyle therapy. People come to us to get off their Remicade and Humira and prednisone, et cetera. And 20 years ago, when I was finishing my GI fellowship, 21 years ago, if you had told me that you could heal Crohn's and ulcerative colitis with diet, I would have said you were crazy. And now it's my distinct pleasure to do it every day in the practice. Thanks so much. I want to thank my co-creator of the podcast, Scott Battisill of 10% Media, Lori Kordowich, producer extraordinaire and director of Engine 2 Events, Amy Mackey, Engine 2's curator of creative content, Wade Clark with Bumble Media, our audio engineer, and Carrie Barrett for technical production. I have to thank my parents, Ann and Essie, who have been such guiding lights and inspirations over the years, as well as the great pioneers of this movement who have been pushing this boulder up the mountain. As they say, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Remember, if you're digging the show, please rate us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, let me say, peace, engine two, Keep it plant strong.